The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. We are on studying the last day of Jesus's life and really the last moments of Jesus's life today. And we've been studying the life of Jesus for uh, about 15 months. And so if you are new, you can go back and you can listen to all these messages. Uh, We have them all on podcast on our website or on our app on our phones. And you can kind of go with us verse by verse through this study of the life and work of Jesus. And now it it just so happens that as we're coming up to Good Friday and as we're coming up to Easter, we find ourselves studying the last few hours of Jesus' life. And I'm going to kind of just welcome us into this because, again, it's going to be uh, a little dark. I mean, that's the only way to to describe it. Um, this is probably the dark, it is the darkest day in human history, and we're going to be studying it today, and I just pray that the Spirit would help us think deeply and help us feel rightly about this event. I was speaking to my neighbor yesterday, he came over, and he, I gave him my book a while back, and he's a PhD in philosophy, he's a very smart guy, he's many years retired, uh, into all kinds of, um, different philosophies and different ideas about God and concepts about God, and he came bringing me over this book. Uh, it's the I Ching, if you've ever heard of this, it's one of the oldest books ever written. It was, um, <clears throat> and uh, he wanted to talk about it, and he wanted to talk about some of the ideas and concepts of all these deep things, and I'm just looking, I'm like, well, it's above my pay grade, but I'll do my best. And, uh, <clears throat> and as he's describing all of this, these philosophies and these ideas and about, he likes this idea that God could be all these different things and time, it might not just be linear, but it might be circular and we might, all this stuff going on. You know, there's these different realms. And I said, yeah, I go, man, I go, honestly, none of that like contradicts what I believe about, you know, Christianity. But what if all of that's true, everything that you're saying is true, and yet the son of God left heaven and entered time and the eternal came into the finite or the infinite came into the finite 
and the word actually became flesh and dwelt among us, well, what would that say about what you're telling me? He goes, well, then all this stuff would be crap. I go, oh, okay. (laughs) I'm okay with that conclusion. Uh, And that's that's kind of the reality of this. Like the, the evidence, you can talk about God and you can talk about all these different ideas and all these different religions, but there's something different about Christianity that Christian says, Christianity says the infinite became finite and the eternal entered into time, right? And God became a man. And so, you know, we don't have to just stare at the clouds in wonder, but we can look at a man and say, what is this God like? And what does this tell us about us? And what does this tell us about the story that we're a part of and the creation that we're a part of? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're really going to look into the face of the Son of God this morning. And we're going to see what we find there. So let me pray. And uh, we're going to jump into it this morning. Father, I do thank you uh, for how you entered into our humanity how you, as Joel said, the author uh, became part of the story. Uh, This gives us something to look at, something to judge ourselves by, something to go to and say, um, is this what God is like? And we can examine it. We can examine the life of your son and we can say, um, was he really the son of God? What did he do? What did he accomplish? What's God like? What does this tell us about us? I thank you for this, that we're not left searching and wondering, uh, but we can examine the man, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us do that this morning. I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would help us hear and understand as we got one hour less sleep last night and many of our kids are still on the same schedule they were before and they might be cranky and difficult and all that and we might be cranky and difficult. I pray that you would um, speak to us and let us see something um, divine this morning. Let us see something that we've never seen before in the work of your son. Um, I pray this because um, I trust you, I believe you, uh, I know the Spirit is here accomplishing your will. And we, we say, come Lord Jesus, do what you want for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Mark chapter 15, if you want to turn there with us. <clears throat> uh, last week we took a long look at Jesus' suffering on the cross. We saw him there suffering physically, mentally, and emotionally. Um, the pain was excruciating, the torment was debilitating, and the shame was humiliating. Death by crucifixion was the worst way to die. And yet, what is even harder to believe is that the physical, mental, and emotional suffering pales in comparison to what Jesus suffered spiritually. And today, we witness that spiritual suffering It was the thought of this moment that we're at in our text today, this hour that caused Jesus to pray in the garden that, quote, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. That's what Jesus said when he came, when he thought about this moment that we're studying today, he said, this hour, if if it could pass, let it pass. In the garden, when the cup of spiritual suffering was placed to the lips of Jesus, He staggered before it. Jesus says, if there's any other way, God, let's do that, but not my will, but your will be done. I'll drink the cup if it's the only way. And now we see that the hour of Jesus' dread, you know, what anxiety does, you have a meeting coming up or you have a confrontational conversation coming up and you've got that anxiety, you've got that dread, 
You know this moment's coming. Well, this moment, surprisingly, Jesus knew the death was coming. He knew the crucifixion and the beating and the mocking and the humiliation and the stripping and the stripping naked. He knew all that was coming, but we don't have him dreading that. We never see him afraid of the physical pain or the mental pain. We see him instead dreading this moment, the, the, the moment of spiritual suffering. And we see three times in verses 33 through 34 that Mark, the author here, directly mentions which hour it is. He says it's the sixth hour, that's noon, by the Jewish reckoning of time. It's the, then he says it's the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., that's the time Jesus died. And after 15 months of studying the Gospel of Mark, we now arrive at the last three hours of Jesus' life, and they are indeed the darkest moments in human history. Even creation bows its head in shame. The sun refuses to shine its light upon the bloody face of the man who spoke it into existence. And for three hours, darkness envelops the whole land. Now, this darkness was more than just a natural darkness. This was a supernatural darkness. This was more than just an eclipse of the sun. This was signaling that all the darkness of the world, every ounce of sin and shame that has poisoned the earth and has poisoned humanity is now being poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, like a sponge, is absorbing all the darkness into himself. Jesus is absorbing all the evil that is being thrown against him by humanity. He absorbs the physical punishment. The scourging, the beating, the crucifixion, and yet Jesus never hardens. He doesn't grit his teeth and think, you'll get yours. Just wait. He takes it all without lashing back or cursing those who are killing him. Jesus absorbs the mental and emotional punishment, the mocking, the cursings, the accusations, the stripping of his clothes and his naked humiliation on the cross, and he never hardens his heart. He takes it all without retaliation. He doesn't turn on those who are crucifying him. He doesn't hate those who are doing this to him. He, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Jesus has soaked up everything that humanity has thrown at him. He's taken our worst. And yet, it's not over. His suffering's not over. There's still more to experience. There's still more to take in. And this is where we see Jesus drowned. This is where we see Jesus die. This is where we see Jesus lost. The man who nothing could stump, the man who nothing could cause him to stagger, nothing could interrupt him in this moment, he's lost. Look at verse, let's just keep reading. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, Darkness covers the earth. And the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried 
with a loud voice. He screams, he yells out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. It's Aramaic, which means, they give us the interpretation here, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what is going on in this moment? A person could spend multiple lifetimes, indeed they have, over 2,000 years, the, the greatest minds on the earth have studied what's going on in this moment, and we can never get to the bottom of it. So I, I'm gonna be honest, I stagger to talk about it today because I can see it a little bit, and I can share it a little bit, and my human language uh, fails me as I try to describe it. So I'm gonna ask the Spirit to do something and help us understand it this morning as I do my best. In this moment, Jesus is suffering spiritually. And it's almost more than he can bear. Now, what does it mean to suffer spiritually? Well, spiritual suffering is all about separation from God, okay? It's the feeling brought about by sin. When we sin, we get separated from God. It's the feeling of being lost, of being abandoned, of being forsaken, of seeing your happiness a far way off and being unable to get to it, okay? Something stands between you and ultimate happiness, ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, it's to look far away and see something that you know would make you more of a human or make you more real or make you more happy but being unable to get to it. It's this feeling that we have been forsaken by God, that we are far from him. And not only are we far from him, but God is, it, Scripture says that God is light and as God is the source of all light, as God gets farther away and as we are separated from him, we're, um, we're surrounded by this dense fog of darkness and we can't even see, maybe, maybe we can't even see the source of happiness, we can't even see him and we feel abandoned and we feel alone and it feels like we'll never be happy again. Now, many of you have felt this. Um, this can be on a spectrum. It feels like deep, dark depression where you don't even know what's caused your feelings, your emotions, the darkness, and yet you feel hopeless. You feel dark and alone and far from God. And like there is no ha happiness will never be, be found again. Now listen, uh, J.K. Uh, Rowling as she was writing the Harry Potter series, she was figuring out a way to depict her own experiences with, with darkness and depression. And she wrote into her stories these characters that were actually stolen from Tolkien, I think. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. And they're called Dementors. And these Dementors are dark and spirit-like and without eyes and without seeing. And when they enter the room, they are like sponges that absorb or extract all the happiness out of the room. And so when you're in their presence, you feel like all the happiness is gone and you'll never be happy again. It's kind of like the ring wraiths in Lord of the Rings. So uh, you feel like you're never going to be happy again. And these, 
these dementors if they can kiss you. That's the thing. Like the dementors kiss. If they can latch hold of you, they suck your soul from your body. And they leave a person as a walking dead, kind of like a zombie. They, they take all the happiness, all the life, all the thought, all the emotions out of the person, and yet they, li- they leave them there still breathing and living and their heart pumping. And I think that's a fascinating concept and a fascinating idea describing depression, this darkness that we feel, this I'll never be happy again when I'm in their presence. And I think that's a great depiction of sin, that sin is this debilitating inner feeling of brokenness, of darkness, of the inability to ever be happy. And people can come up to you and go, why are you so depressed? Why are you so upset? Why do you feel so dark? Look at these things in your life that are going well. And yet you have, it doesn't matter how many things are going well. There's something about this brokenness, this darkness that you're going through that's kind of all encompassing. And that's kind of how sin has messed us up. And that's kind of how darkness keeps us and separates us. And it's a good analogy of sin as separation from God. And this, dark, this idea of darkness, if you listen to uh, the serial uh, season, po- the, the season two of the podcast uh, with this Berg, Bo Bergdahl, he was thrown into this, uh, you know, uh, whatever you want, he's, he, he, uh, I can't even think of it, but he's, he's being uh, tortured or whatever. And he's in darkness, right? He's in, he says, he, this is what he says. He says, I was, I was in a pitch black room in total darkness for months on end. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. He says, it was so dark for such a long time that I didn't just forget who I was. See, he lost all concept of time. Is it day? Is it night? Is it Monday? Is it Tuesday? Is it July? Is it December? He lost all concept of time. He didn't just forget who I was. He said, I forgot what I was. That this darkness was so encompassing, so debilitating, that he couldn't even separate his thoughts. He didn't know what he was. His being was kind of lost and debilitated in the darkness. See, to suffer spiritually is like that. It's to be separated from God, the source of all hope and the source of all light and the source of all happiness. The only thing that can give your life ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose to suffer spiritually is to be separated from that. Now for us, here's the reality. All of us, we know what this feels like. We are born separated from God. We feel his distance and his separation often. Like that's, sometimes we don't get that far. We We don't feel that darkness. We don't lose all hope. Some of us do, some of us don't. But all of us know what it's like to be like, ah, like just kind of going through the motions and feeling like God might be cold or God might be distant, like we might be separated from God. We, we all know that feeling. But for Jesus, listen, Jesus had been in perfect relationship with God for all eternity. Outside of time, guys, I want you to think of an infinite piece of paper. It's hard to do, but do. An infinite piece of paper, and then in the middle of that piece of paper, you draw a line. That line is time. 
Okay, that line is time. Infinite piece of paper, that's God. God has infinitely been happy with himself. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Spirit is the love that intermingles between them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, happy for all eternity and for this moment in time that's broken. This is why, listen, this eternity of happiness with God. This is why Jesus doesn't just cry out here. He doesn't just say, God, God. But he says, my God, my God. Jesus is saying, we are one. We have always been one. We will always be one. But in this moment, Jesus is saying, I don't feel your love. I, I, I feel your wrath. I feel your anger. I feel your displeasure. I feel forsaken. I feel God forsaken in this moment, Jesus says. And this is, we see this because this is the only time in scripture that Jesus doesn't call God Father. Jesus always says, Abba, Dada, Father, Papa, when he's praying, when he's speaking to God, it's intimate language. But here in this moment, the only time in scripture God says, my God, my God. In this moment, as the son cries out for the father, the father turns his face away. And Jesus feels totally abandoned, totally forsaken. He's in the darkness that Bergdahl talked about. He's in the presence of the Dementor. And all happiness has been sucked out of the world. And for us to really get a taste of how Jesus is suffering spiritually, we need to understand this. Listen, loss is always compounded by the length of love. The, 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 the weight of a loss is always compounded by the length of the love. See, the longer you love someone, the greater the loss. Recently, my great aunt, uh, Sue, lost her husband. And Sue and James had been married for 61 years. And he died. And last week or so, a couple weeks ago, my mom was down with them and she was in the presence of this. She was, she's lost a lot of her happiness, lost a lot of her hope. She's in a very dark time in her life. And she said this, we were one. I miss him every second of every day. I don't know how to live without him and I don't want to. See, 61 years with the same man, right? You, 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 be, you are one, but you become one more than that. You, you know, they always joke that two people begin to start looking like each other, right? Like, like they think alike. They, they, my, it's even happened with my wife and I, right? Now we go, to the, we, go to the, we go to Texas Roadhouse and we both order the same thing, right? Like when did our taste become identical, right? And the longer you're with someone, the longer you're one with someone, when they're gone, the greater awareness you have of the loss, the greater the pain of the searing loss, right? And so think about this. That's what it's like for my great aunt and uncle after 61 years to feel the pain of separation. Think about that multiplied by eternity. 
that the Father, Son, and Spirit had been one and happy in loving community for all of eternity, and now in this moment, that's broken. As Jesus is absorbing the sin of mankind spiritually into himself, all the sins of mankind are being placed upon Jesus and Jesus is becoming sin, as 2 Corinthians tells us. He's becoming sin on the cross. The Trinity, see, he's losing in this moment, sin causes separation. He's losing the Father. Now, this will blow your mind and you won't understand it completely. I'm gonna say this, believe it fully, Contemplate it forever because we don't understand it completely, okay? The son is losing the face of the father. The son is losing the father, yet the trinity is always the trinity. The trinity is not completely broken in its essence. But Jesus here has lost his awareness of the father. He feels forsaken. He turns in this moment of darkness. He turns to the Father for comfort, the source of all light. He's in this all-encompassing darkness and he's looking for a window of light. He's looking for some bleak, just maybe a sunrise coming in the distance, something that could give him hope. And he doesn't find the face of a father that's always been there. He finds the cold, hard face of a judge. The Father looks at his son and no longer sees his son, but he sees sin. Jesus has become sin and the father has become the judge. Now, this was the plan that the father, son, and spirit all came up with and agreed upon in eternity past. This was their gospel story that would bring about the restoration of the planet and the redemption of humanity, but at its climax here, at its climax, we don't see Jesus beating his chest, right? We don't even see him like a conquering hero and a conquering warrior. We see him in fear. At the climax of this story, we see the Son of God cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's two things that we need to see here in this situation. We see this act of propitiation. It's a big term. It's a judicial term. It's a justice term. And it's like this. Sin makes us guilty, right? We're guilty before the judge. And so when we look to the cross, we see that we deserve punishment for our sin. All of our sin deserves punishment. And yet Jesus was punished for us. Here in this moment, Jesus is taking our punishment. But more than that, some of us get that. But do you see the other side of the cross, the relational side, the, 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 the theological term is the expiation of sin. This is how God is dealing with the separation. See, what happens when, when someone sins against you, there's a, they need to be punished, they need to, there's, there's the judicial aspect, but there's also the relational aspect. Relationship is broken. They've hurt you, they've wounded you, and now there's a separation that's happening, happens in the relationship. Well, the same thing with us and God. When we sin against God, there's this relational dissonance. There's this distance that's put between us and God. There's this chasm. There's this darkness. And here we see Jesus dealing with the relational aspect as well. See, sin makes us dirty, right? And dirty people can't be in the presence of a clean God. 
And so what Jesus does is he absorbs all of that sin, not only the wrath, but also the sin, the defilement, the dirtiness, the distance between us and God, and Jesus takes it to the cross and dies there, representing the, the if you know, ah, I'm not gonna get into the day of atonement, but the two goats, one goat, one lamb would die for the sins of the people, and the other one, they would have the, it would be the, the scapegoat, if you've ever heard that term, a scapegoat. The sins of the people would be confessed on the scapegoat, and then it would be sent away to take the sins of the people far from them. And in this moment, we see Jesus deal, he, Jesus is our scapegoat. He's dealing with the relational consequences of our sin. And this is why he feels forsaken, not just judged, not just guilty, but forsaken. He's pushed away from the Father, okay? He's the scapegoat. He's taken our sin and been sent away. Get out of my presence. I can't be in the presence of sin. And so God pushes himself away from Jesus. The Son of God becomes the sin of the world, and the Father turns his face away. The Father forsook the Son because the Son took upon himself our transgressions, our iniquities, Isaiah says. Jesus was, quote, delivered up because of our transgressions, Romans 4, 25, and he died for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He, quote, who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and became a curse for us, Galatians 5, 13. Jesus here is being forsaken by God for us. 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. That Eloi, Eloi, they, they confuse that with Eli, which is Elijah. And someone ran and now listen, what do they think? This is, this, is, this is what they're looking at this and they're like, oh, oh, the show's not over. Maybe he's gonna do a trick. Elijah didn't die, if you remember, a chariot of fire scooped down and took him to the heavens. He's calling Elijah, show's not over, here we go. And so they run and they dip this sponge into this vinegar. It's a, basically, it's a stimulant. What it was used for was not, a, a, not for mercy. This isn't, what, this isn't like we saw last week that Jesus denied what would uh, dull the pain for him. This is a stimulant meant to wake them up and, and make the death last longer. And so they stick it into his face and he breathes it and he wakes up for a moment. They're wanting to see, is Elijah gonna come? What's he gonna do? Keep breathing. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Let's see if there's one, left, one more trick left in this guy. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. The other gospels have Jesus saying a couple things. They say, he have him saying, it is finished. And then lastly, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But it says he's uttering a loud cry. He's not whispering it. It's, this is a guttural death cry. As his last, last breath is leaving his lungs, he's crying out to God. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom. Now, many of us are reading this, and if you have never grown up in church, you've never been around this, you're like, what in the world is that about? He's talking about drapes. Jesus is dying, and we're, we've got a commentary on drapes here. Well, that curtain was in the Jewish temple, okay, where the Jewish people worshipped their, the one and only God. And this curtain would separate different sections of the temple. The biggest curtain was about 30 by 30, and most scholars say it was about three inches thick, okay? It would take horses to open it. And this curtain separated the Holy of Holies, the place literally where God dwelled. God lived there. It used to house the Ten Commandments and, uh, and the staff of Moses and some things, and God's presence, the Shekinah glory of God literally lived there, okay? So the source of all happiness and all holiness was in that place, and they had this huge curtain that separated it, and one man from the most holy people on all the earth, right, the Israels, one man was chosen among them, the high priest, one day a year, he could go behind there. He had to offer sacrifices for himself and for the people, and he could go behind this curtain and meet with God one day a year, right? And then what's interesting, on the outside of that curtain, Jewish holy men, only Jewish only people who were holy, only people who had, a, who had performed the appropriate religious duties, they could enter that area, okay? So one guy could enter the Holy of Holies. Outside of that, a few or many Jewish men that had performed the, you know, they're good enough and they'd done the right rituals and they were well-respected enough, they could enter that area. But then we had another curtain and outside of that curtain, that's where the women could go. So we have two layers that women are completely denied the access to. The women could go here, and then outside of this court was the court of Gentiles, and now others on the outside who wanted to, maybe Gentiles who converted to the Jewish faith, they could go there, and they could be out there. So we have this kind of layers of separation or segregation. We have layers of access to God. See, your access to God was determined by your ethnicity, your gender, your age, your occupation, and your ability to obey the law and offer sacrifices. Now, what's interesting, really, it's not too different from every other religion today. Every other religion today says, here's the steps how to get to God. Here's the steps, here's what you must do to get closer to God. You feel this distance, you feel this dissonance between you and God? Well, here's how to get over that. We have eight steps to enlightenment. We have the Ten Commandments, we have moral codes, we have meditation and all these different things that you can do, good service in our world, right? Recycling, lowering your carbon emissions, all of these things are ways to be better and ways to earn your way into the good graces of the gods. And even for Christians, you might be here today and you might think like this, I think most of us view our relationship with God like this these days. We look at guys like Tim Keller and guys like Billy Graham and we say, wow, they must really have access to God. They must be really close to him because look at what they're doing for him. Listen to what they say. Look at what they've done. They must really have access to him. I wonder what it's like to go behind the curtain like that. I wonder what it's like to meet with God and talk with God and know God like that. 
Some of you look at me that way. He's a preacher. He must have some kind of VIP card that gets him in with God. He just sends God an email every Saturday night. God gives him a sermon. Wow. What would that be like? God, if that would be true, God, for me, that's like, then God changes his email address every Saturday night because <laughs> I've never gotten the reply. But here at Jesus' death, the curtain, the veil, that represents the whole human way of relating to God, all the steps, all the, these are the good people, these are the bad people, if you earn your way, you can be really in with God. That whole human way of relating to God is torn. Think about this, listen. It's torn by God, not by man. the, The curtain's not torn from the bottom up. It's torn from the top down. Like the hand of God reaches down and rips asunder everything that has kept people standing on the outside. Kept the Gentiles and kept women and kept people who didn't obey the law perfectly on the outside feeling inferior, feeling like they don't have the same access as the high priest does. God himself rips it at the death of Christ. And then, what's he saying? He's saying, people have access to me through my son. Now listen, Jesus is the true veil. Like Jesus is the true curtain. You only get access to the presence of God if you go through the torn flesh of Jesus. See, Jesus is the curtain. Jesus, you still can't get to God. You still can't know God. You still can't access anything we're talking about today, that eternal happiness, that eternal peace and joy. You still can't access it by trying to go around Jesus. You can't get behind that curtain. You have to go through him. You have to believe in him by faith and receive the grace that he's given us. And we're going to see that in the most unlikely of places. We see that by looking at a Roman centurion. Look what happens. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, look, in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, we have to see how shocking this declaration is. This is the most unlikely of person to make this confession. A centurion wasn't an appointed position. It was literally a man who worked his way all up, worked his way up from, from, from entering into the Roman uh, army, worked his way up into this position. So what does that tell us? He was a trained killer. He was a hardened professional. He was in charge of the men who were crucifying and killing Jesus. He had no doubt witnessed and ordered and executed hundreds of people before. This was nothing to him. If you ever visit a farm, right, and you see an animal slaughtered, right, it will be shocking to you. 
And it's even, what's even more shocking as looking at the person doing it, that he's giggling and he's talking about the bears and he's doing it like he's preparing a hamburger, right? He, why? There's no emotion here. He's done it a thousand times before. This one's going to die just like the last one. And then we're going to send it off and it's going to be prepared like the last one. It's going to arrive as a burger on your plate at home, right? Think of the centurion like that. This is, I've done this, every, I've done this often. Another guy is going to die. Another guy is going to be crucified. No big deal. This guy was also a complete outsider to the Jewish religion, right? He's a Gentile. He doesn't understand the Messiah. He's never read the Old Testament. He doesn't understand all the prophecies that talked about the suffering servant that was going to come and die for the sins of God's people to restore and redeem them. He doesn't know any of that. All he sees is, here's another man on the cross dying under my hand. But something supernatural happens. As the centurion is overseeing the murder of Jesus, a divine transaction takes place. This man is unaware that as he is killing the son of God, the son of God is killing his sin. At the moment of Jesus' death, this centurion is awakened, converted, regenerated. The spirit of God enters him and gives him the eyes of faith and he professes, truly this man was the son of God. Now, this goes against everything culturally normal in, that, in Jesus' day and age, right? Right? If you were, first off, if you were Jewish and you looked upon Jesus' crucifixion, we saw that last week. If you were Jewish, you looked upon a crucified person, you'd go, that person's cursed by God. That person is cursed by God. That's how you thought of it. He's obviously a bad man. But if you're a Roman, like the centurion here, if you're a Roman and you look upon a guy on a cross, you go, what a weakling. What a joke. But after Jesus cries out and dies, this hardened executioner goes against every current cultural norm and is convinced that Jesus is more than just a man. He's the very son of God. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, there's only one way for that to happen. And this, is an this has really happened, but it's also an analogy for how every single human being on the planet who will believe or has believed enters into Christianity. It's nothing they do. It's something that happens to them. You're looking at Jesus and you're laughing and you're joking and your boys are throwing dice for his clothes and you just beat him and you just crucified him, and you're waiting for him to die so you can go home to have dinner with your family. And all of a sudden, he cries out, it is finished, Father, I give my spirit to you, and he dies, and immediately this man looks upon the busted body of this man, and he goes, truly, he was the son of God. Something changed in him. He didn't do it. There was no apologetics. There was no convincing this man of the moral reasoning of this, of, or of even what's happening. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the Old Testament. He doesn't have the word of God. He doesn't have a Bible study. He doesn't have the preaching of a gospel sermon. He didn't hear a great song on the radio. 
This man sees a busted dead man and immediately the spirit of God does something on inside of him and he says, he's the son of God. This was a gift of God given to him in this moment. The Holy Spirit enters the centurion and gave him the eyes to see, gave him a mind to understand and a heart to believe. This man receives the gift of faith and he puts his faith in Jesus as the son of God. Now I want you to think about this. There's so much going on here. It's like clothes. What's the punishment for murdering an innocent person? It was death. And in this moment, this Roman centurion realizes he just killed the sinless son of God who did nothing wrong, never sinned once. Could anyone ever commit a greater sin? No, I don't think they could. But on the cross, Jesus is bearing in his body, he's absorbing in his body the sins of every single person who will ever believe, even the man who's putting him to death. And so in this moment, think about that. He's killing the son of God and the son of God is killing his sin. He's murdering the son of God and the son of God is dealing with the separation between him and God so that when the son of God is dead, when his sin is committed and the son of God dies, this new man gets new life. See, this is the gospel. This is what it means when it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus can't lose anyone Every single person who will ever believe in him, their sins were paid for on the cross and the death of cross makes effective the salvation of every single person who will ever believe. It accomplishes it. The work of God on the cross accomplishes it. It doesn't just make it possible. Like Jesus dies on the cross and he's looking at the centurion and he's like, man, I really hope this man believes when I die. I really hope that my, di- my death counts for something. I really hope this means something. I would really like to save this man. No, the death of the Son of God accomplishes that salvation, makes it happen. Man, Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. Now, In this moment, a centurion, a man who doesn't have access to God, a man who couldn't even enter the temple, he's in the courts of the Gentiles, right? He couldn't make his way in because of his ethnicity, the way he lived his life, his morality, all these things, he could never have access to God. This Roman centurion, here's here's the funny thing. Mark began declaring Jesus as the son of God in the first couple verses, and God said, he's the son of God at the baptism. And demons said, what do you want to do with a son of God? But no human being has professed Jesus as the son of God until this moment. And who is it? Who is it? A Roman centurion who has the blood of Christ on his hands. He's the first one. He's the first one brought into the family. He's the first one adopted and saved. A Roman centurion murderer. See, what's going on in this moment is Jesus 
has taken place of the Roman centurion. That the, the punishment that the centurion deserves, Jesus takes. Jesus is being driven out of the family. He's forsaken by God so that the centurion can be brought in. The son of God is being treated like a murderer so that a murderer can be treated like a son of God. And this is the gospel. This is our good news that Jesus was forsaken by God so that we could be adopted into his family so that no matter what we go through in our life, we can know I'm not being forsaken. Jesus sealed that deal for me. I will never be forsaken by God because Jesus was forsaken for me. Jesus takes the darkness so that we could have the light. That Jesus felt abandoned so that we could know that we are eternally accepted in him. And Jesus, in this moment, he lost the Father's face so that we could have it forever. Now, I I want you to think about that, please. Jesus lost the Father's face so that you can have it. He lost the Father's ear so that you could have it. Now, I'm I'm just gonna draw three quick deductions from this text. One, if God forgives this murderer, he'll also forgive you. Is there anything more heinous than executing the Son of God, the sinless Son of God? I would say no. And no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how many times you've cursed him, no matter how many times you run away, no matter what, how you, faithful or unfaithful you've been in your marriage, no matter how addictive of a personality you have and how much, many struggles you have and how many times you've lied and how many times you've committed the same sin over and over and over and over, there is no sin greater than the grace of God. There is no sin greater than this in this moment. And if God can forgive this Roman centurion, God can forgive you. And I don't just mean judicially, like not guilty, but I mean relationally. He invites you in. He welcomes you into the family. He wants to know you and commune with you and fill you with himself. Second, if Jesus paid for our sins, that means that we don't have to. If you're suffering in your life right now, If you're suffering, you're not paying for your sin. Christ paid for your sin. God's not punishing you. You've been forgiven. If Jesus paid for our sins, he has purchased access for us. Not anything we could ever do. Third, if the curtain was torn in two, that means we all have access to God if we go through Jesus. And I just was thinking about this. What kind of access do we have? What kind of access? Jesus now is resurrected at the right hand of God. He's king forever. And yet who dares bother a king? Right? Who dares enter into a king's throne room at 3 a.m. and ask for something? I'll tell you who dares to do it. The king's kids, that's who dares to do it. Nobody employed by the king would dare wake him up at that time. Nobody would dare 
ask for something they've asked for a million times. Nobody would dare yell at him and rebuke him and be afraid and be consumed with anxiety and say, I don't trust you, I don't trust you, I don't trust you. But I'll tell you who can do that. Kids can do that. Kids do that. And Jesus died to give us that kind of access. Jesus is treated like the centurion. He's treated like a murderer so that we can be treated like family. And I I pray that if you're not experiencing that kind of access, I pray that you would think about this. I pray that you'd put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never believed before. Maybe you've never known this is what Christianity is and this is how Christianity is so much different than every other religion in the world. And I say, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe him. Is that happening to you in this moment? Are you like that Roman centurion that in this moment that your eyes are being opened and you're like, Jesus is the son of God. And put your faith in him. Put your faith in him. Let me pray. Father, I do... Thank you for the work of your son. I kind of feel like a nearsighted person trying to describe to someone else the Grand Canyon. That there is so much more to understand, to know, to see, to behold, to wonder at the mystery, to just see the beauty of that I can behold and I can describe this morning. And I pray that through the power of the Spirit, like you didn't need any words to do what you did in the heart of the centurion, um, I pray that your Spirit would do that in the hearts of everyone present here, that we would catch a glimpse of the all-satisfying glory of Jesus. He is glorious leave heaven, enter into time, suffer in our place, and yet do this all willingly and joyfully so that we, sinners, enemies, people on the outside, like Roman centurions, could be invited into the new family of God and have brothers and sisters and have a new father and we can be invited into that Trinitarian love triangle. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is that love. We get invited into that, and may that just fill our hearts. May that drive out the darkness that we feel. May that keep the darkness at bay. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Father, that we would fear no evil, because you are there, and you comfort us. pray that we would experience that this morning ourselves. And as baptized believers come to partake in the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would eat of this grace, that we would experience this grace, we would have this avenue, this means of grace as you are bringing it into ourselves and you leave with us today. I pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.